Hello guys, welcome back to Ragnar's of Invest podcast. Our today's guest is Tommy Ricketts from B Zero Carbon. Tommy, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's really great to have you here. We're going to cover the topic of carbon emissions, uh, carbon offsetting, carbon credits, anything around carbon. Uh, but I would like to go a little bit deeper into your personal story and I would like to, for you to share maybe how did you end up in this space? Because your background is more on the financial side. Uh, you spent plenty of years in banking, doing uh, different stuff, and then you took everything you've learned there and move it into the carbon space. Uh, how did the transition go? Was it smooth, uh, something challenging? Uh, tell us a bit, uh, what's the story behind that? Sure, well, well, I'll actually take you back to, so banking was my second career. My first career was actually in politics. So I started um, working originally um, for my, uh, a friend of my mum's who um, was the European president of the Greens in the 1980s and is still uh, uh, very active in Brussels. Um, he was an MEP. I think he was the first ever elected Green politician in the Hamburg state parliament um, and is obviously a bit of a hero of mine. And so the, my, my introduction to the Green movement came very early in my life, actually. Um, and yeah, and I worked for an intern uh, for him in the European Parliament a few times over my studies. And, you know, really didn't think of any other career except going into politics when I left university, if I'm honest. Um, then started working in, in what's called public affairs. So that's like political communications, speech writing, uh, responding to policy debates on behalf of companies in the UK or the European um, Commission. And that was mostly transport and infrastructure clients. And so clearly, you know, that, a big part of that is thinking about the environmental impact um, and particularly sort of, you know, the rise of renewable infrastructure and, and what, what that would mean. Uh, and then I actually went to work in banking policy um, for a company that used to be called the British Bankers Association is now called UK Finance. And there I did a lot of work on, um, again, on actually on, on infrastructure. Uh, and what became very clear was green infrastructure was far less um far more complicated to fund than social infrastructure, so hospitals and schools. And there was a big and perpetual issue in in the UK um, policy scene about trying to um, get cap private capital investment into this space. And then, you know, but the public subsidies necessary to make that happen, and there was a gap between the two, effectively. And that gap was really and continues to be the biggest blockage to... Um, kind of the in infrastructure level of transition or energy transition so that you know I, I kind of had some pretty decent experience in that but my frustration particularly with the green movement um circa 10 15 years ago was it didn't seem to have a political economy i mean that quite sweepingly and i and i would stand behind that the theory of change really relied on sort of people doing it you know not for capitalist incentives which is typically how this, the system runs whether you like it or not but doing it for sort of ethereal, ethereal and sort of moral uh, reasons, uh, which I just thought was a bit impractical, basically. Uh, and if, if I'm completely honest, and I get a great, great example. I, I was in um, the European Parliament and there was a big um, meeting. Iran uh, was over and the European Greens were hosting this big event. And they were trying to convince the Iranian Minister of Energy to you know, build all these solar farms in, in the desert. And they were sort of making the argument that they could be energy sufficient and they wouldn't need to extract oil. And then, you know, in, in the in the sort of foyer afterwards, you know, someone sort of pointedly said to me, but you do know that they use the energy proceeds to subsidize the state. And you're like, so basically what the Green Movement was asking was for Iran to 
disband the very nature of its of its social and political economy in order to you know to, to do this energy function obviously it doesn't really make any sense right so anyway th- and then i decided that um politics was was all very well but i sort of had enough of writing speeches for senior people and ghostwriting things and, and i sort of managed somehow to get a job in research at a bank i confess i, I went for the job interview at bank of america um because my boss in politics had gone back into finance he was formerly a a, a banker a, a researcher at deutsche bank and the job title that i was applying for which was called equity strategist i had no idea what that even meant <laughs> I, I turned up the day i didn't know what a bloomberg was i didn't even know i mean this maybe may sound silly but for all those people that use a, a excel every day i didn't know what f4 was which just saves you a lot of time if you know what f4 is um and you know and i and i got the job kind of on the the hutch bar of knowing a lot about the policy and and and, and you know british politics and being a kind of uh a, a geek basically but on the condition that i would do the cfa and then you know long story short in, in finance what that taught was really how the capitalists and financial market infrastructure in terms of decision making and risk taking really works and actually interestingly um joining the bank at a time of very fractious British politics so you had the the Scottish referendum then you had the national election in 2015 then you had Brexit so i remember sort of saying to to the boss there you know i'm not a financial analyst but i am a political analyst so i was quite good timing for me to come in with someone who you know knew a lot about the british political you know um, architecture and and then yeah and then kind of going into the, the the environmental scene what came about was i did all this fund flow analysis in new york looking at global investor positioning across different asset classes and one of the themes for the 2020s was obviously the growth of esg at the back end of the last decade and then i used to do this sort of slightly flippant joke which is you bring up on bloomberg you bring up spy which was the biggest uh, s&p um, etf and you bring up esgu which was the biggest esg etf and you look at the attributions and they were the same fund so i used to always say to people that esg is just basically a marketing gimmick because if you look at the way in which the 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 the, the structures are actually allocated does you couldn't tell the difference and that's kind of the the kernel of the idea you know starting with this idea that the green movement lacked the kind of translation an effective capitalist uh, political economy but also then the financial markets didn't really understand what 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 the environmental transition really meant and then i started looking just at the industry and there was like you know not obviously nothing there but it it was like the size of the demand case like you know basically historic or you know or at least a paradigm shift in in the modal distributions of the economy versus the services and industry that existed to deliver that it was like a once in a 250 year or once in a you know multi generation event and and that was like that was it that was the light bulb moment of like i've got to go and do something in this space um so yeah opportunity and a kind of weird uh story of being a kind of slightly restless green activist and and then reluctant capitalist along the way yeah but the way you you describe it it's like every single step makes total sense and uh, the whole story just just works out at the end i like to say that it was a grand plan it wasn't it was a series <laughs> of it was a series of sort of you know uh impassioned impassioned ideas but obviously in in retrospect it sounds like a very very linear story <laughs> so you are here now with uh, bizero carbon which is a company doing So we are we're a global carbon rating agency. So what that means is um we specialize in looking and assessing um the quality of carbon credits which are instruments 
from everything from a forestry project to mangrove to a cook stove to an engineered solution like a direct air capture that try to avoid or remove a unit of CO2, which is basically measured in a ton of CO2 equivalents. And these instruments are very valuable if you believe, one, they actually deliver on their core claim, i.e. they do remove or avoid a ton of, of carbon. But particularly for the bulk of emissions which exist in the economy right now, which are not readily uh, reducible or substitutable. So, you know, you need an, an instrument, compensatory instrument to address the emissions that you can't readily re- reduce or remove. And in that, so doing that, you know, hopefully they accelerate and build an economy around accelerating um, net zero. Mm-hmm. Maybe just taking one step back, because uh, we, in your story, we uh, there is one more fact that we shared before the recording that was pretty interesting to us. Uh, B Zero Carbon started as a footprint company and not a carbon rating uh, company. Could you tell us a bit more? How did you? What was kind of the initial idea, and how did you decide to to pivot? Yeah. So, um, I mean. I'll take you back to the Rugby World Cup in um, Japan in 2019. And I'm sat there with a friend of mine who's a musician in a band called Jungle. And he was lamenting to me about the environmental impact of his sort of na- in- international tours. You know, they just I think they'd just done a week where they'd gone to Russia, Australia and the Middle East and back to London, carting around their like, you know, their big set. And he was like, as all good London sort of like centre left people was, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's so bad. I, I wish I could have a better environmental footprint. And then I was like, you know, for whatever reason, I've I talked to you about what I was thinking about at the time in, in, in New York. I started explaining to him how he would do it and how he could start using carbon credits. So the concept of B0 was literally to help musicians B0. That was like the first idea of, of the business. <laughs> and then we actually cooked up a whole series of like, if you're ever interested in this, uh, like how you could decarbonize the New York um club scene i did a big project looking at that and then all kinds of sort of things like this but it wasn't that we started as a footprinting agency because that's what we wanted to be we started with four ideas an education platform a climate change education platform for corporates um a life cycle assessment specialist so like really deep footprinting analysis for products and 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 services an investment fund in nature-based solutions and this carbon rating construct and effectively over over the next 18 months we just whittled it down and then we got to a position where we were using the footprinting business to bootstrap the company so that we could do the r&d into the ratings business and it's that that point in summer 2021 when um, illuminate financial sort of approached us and you know long story short said you know come on guys time to pick a business model and get going you know enough enough of these sort of like spaghetti at the wall strategy And I think that was the sort of, the you know, it was them really coaching us to sort of say, you know, are you really ambitious about doing something serious or are you really happy just sort of, you know, you know, messing around with um, with like LCAs of bikinis and jewelry companies and stuff like that. And that's all very important, but it wasn't like a big scalable business, basically. And those four ideas that you had, was it uh, was the reasoning behind it to, to diversify your risk or you just had many different interests and you wanted to experiment with different things? Those are just the four ideas that we actually sold. I mean, I've got probably a list of a thousand ideas in this space that, that we, we never really yeah. took very far. No, so, so what it came about was the, the whole idea of the rating was because Seb and I come from a financial like, research background and Seb... You know, sat there and he was doing some research into what a carbon credit is and in his infinite genius he just he just he could not rationalize this as a security he was like this is not a financial security but it's trading like a financial security and 
you know, a bit like kind of, sort of those detective shows where you see the person lose their mind for three months trying to solve this case. He just went on this absolute spiral into the inner workings of the voluntary carbon market and kind of came out of it with this idea that we have to build the financial, you know, information architecture to get this thing to be a tradable and, and scalable asset. And, you know, and then along the way, you know, I'm from more from an equity background. So I kind of came in and was thinking more about, you know, how you kind of message it and how you think about the, some of the different, like, you know, different sides of that equation. And it just took a long time to get going. I mean, a really interesting point in terms of, uh, I think I mentioned to you before, but, um, you know, good ideas. There's good ideas and there's things that you're you're good at and they're not necessarily the same thing. You know, there's some people who just, you know, who are good at doing things that they don't necessarily find that enjoyable, but they are really good at it and vice versa, you know, uh, they'll never get me to act or sing, for example. And, and I don't, you know, that, that sort of thing. But what became clear was we put out a press release saying that we'd had some angel investment in April 2021 and that we were going to start look, like, looking at a carbon rating. Literally, Goldman Sachs and City and a couple of other banks emailed us that day and like called us into their offices to say, what are you doing? Like, that's how much the, the market was, like how easy it was to basically to penetrate and, and establish that idea. But at the same token, there were 15 companies that year that raised, you know, A or B on rounds and footprinting. And so, you know, not only was it much more in our wheelhouse to understand, you know, the actual mechanics of, of un, uh, fundamental assessment for securities or financial assets, it was also just, there was just a huge gap in the market. So that's kind of really where the, the sort of momentum for the ratings business came off. Maybe just, just one last thing based, based on this story and your uh, way of kind of playing with different ideas and seeing what happens and deciding to scale just one of them. Quite often we speak with founders who have many different interests. Uh, they, it's hard for them to focus. They, they know that they should focus on one specific thing, but it's just they don't really know how to make this decision. Would you have any advice for, for, for those founders who are still kind of struggling to, to say, okay, this is my way? This is where I go. Yeah, maybe something more than just follow your heart. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I think, as heart. I said, <laughs> only follow your heart if you're rich. Otherwise, you're going to go long out of business before you, uh, you know, you, you do that. I think there's a couple of decisions. It's do you want to go for the the fundraising route? You know, if that's something that you want to do, you have to understand the rules of fundraising. People don't give you money for free. You know, they expect discipline. They expect, uh, you know, a, a, a coherent approach. They expect structure. Uh, vision, etc., but then that becomes a self-fulfilling, fan, uh, you know, prophecy in the best in the best situation um, that you have to deliver that vision. And so, you know, that's one of the things to say. You know, if if you want to, you know, you, you can't basically just shoot the breeze and figure it out. If you want to then go and get outside investment, because that's not actually very fiduciary of you. You know, you should obviously be respecting that money that people invest in you. Um, on the other hand, if you are interested in exploring and still trying to find an, an idea, the other thing I'd say is just be patient. Like a good a good friend of of my um, brother-in-law has this fantastic business and it you know wasn't going really anywhere for about six years covid hit, kicked in suddenly there was a change in the way in which employment systems worked and this business is now going gangbusters so the other thing i would just say is either if you think you've got the right idea but it's the wrong timing be patient and you know and, and maybe do give it enough time to sort of for the world to get rational um or if you are prepared to go and do this fundraising just just you know be prepared to walk the walk because it is somewhat easier to you know make those promises than it is to deliver against them and those those delivering against the promises of what you want to build may end up forcing you to go and make decisions that you didn't end up anticipating at the beginning and you just have to make sure that 
you know, you're happy with that type of working, you know, rolling with it, being quite tenacious, being quite tactical, you know, and, and really fulfilling the vision of, of you and all your stakeholders. And those are, that's what I'd say. Just kind of have a view about how you want to work and how you want to, to play those different scenarios. I like the idea of having options, uh, like two different scenarios that you presented. Not There's no one way of doing things. It kind of depends on the context and what you're willing to, to do and how much patience you have. Uh, so this it's it's pretty cool how how you how you presented it. Um, maybe let's go a bit more to the topic of of carbon credits. This is the the main thing that we will, wanted to cover today. Uh, what we get pretty often when we speak with different founders, different uh, organizations in this space is is the topic of quality. Everyone talks that everyone says that uh, quality matters. It's not only about obviously you know, buying something that brings environmental impact, but also in itself, it's it's important for them for different reasons. Would you be able to give us a bit of insight, like based on, on your experiences and uh, on your conversations with, with your clients? Yeah. What it is that uh, the quality, why this quality is so important to, to the different stakeholders? So I think there's no universal definition of, of quality. Um, so I, I, I guess the first thing to say is quality is slightly in the eye of the beholder, which makes it an interesting challenge because people are trying to standardize this definition of quality. And there's, depending on where you are in the value chain, it means very different things to you. So, you know, the value chain in carbon is pretty simple. It's developers, investors, and then what I'd call digital exchange venues, trans exchanges and, and marketplaces. Mm -hmm trader brokers or OTC interactions, and then end buyers, buy to retire. And you might have a large organization that has multiple of those personas. But jumping to the end, which is what people mostly think about, the end buyer, you know, they really care about reputation risk, clearly. You know, they, they don't want to be virtue signaling by buying this instrument and then have, you know, be on the front page of The Guardian. Um, they also care a lot about where the money goes and the social impacts of those projects and the accountability for, you know, for, for the claims from a, from a co-benefit perspective, disproportionately potentially to other parts of the value chain who do care about it. But really, that's, you know, to, to speak monetarily for a second, I think that's more about like, you know, it's like a sort of additional price signal. Um, but the developers, obviously, as the exception there. Uh, and then, you know, in the, in the belly, what people want to understand is the relative quality of different things because they want to know what they should be recommending versus other things in the market and whether the price they should be recommending them at is, you know, is effective, both for making money themselves and for um, obviously for, for arbitraging or, you know, doing the normal day-to-day -day transacting um, sort of strategies you would in the market. So at, at a general level, quality means different things to different personas. On a specific level, let's just focus on, on carbon claims. You know, what that really means is a project that's highly additional, i.e. the revenues associated with the carbon stream, the money they get from selling the credits, is a substantial, if not total, part of the revenue associated with the activity. So, you know, a great example of this would be renewables, where uh, a smaller and smaller proportion of the total revenue associated with running that power plant is from carbon finance versus an engineered solution like DAC removals, where 100% of the revenue from that would be the sale of carbon credits. There's no other activity that they do. Um, likewise, forestry is very interesting because some forests, you have very prevalent um, forestry activity. So, you know, sustainable, sustainable forestry. Um, 
and depending on the type of tree that they plant can be a lot more commercially viable than other other types of trees versus the other end of the spectrum where you have you know restoration of um agricult like decay the de- de- decayed or deteriorated agricultural land where you basically got no other form of revenue associated with that because it doesn't have any carrying capacity anymore or it's a highly highly you know um chemical farming strategy to kind of extract the last bit of yield off it and you know so you've got all these different additionality considerations but good additionality means there's no public or private uh, there's a, there's a lack of public or private funding that would make that viable and then therefore the the carbon revenues really is additional the second thing would be this question of you know of overcrediting now overcrediting in simple terms is comes about from this idea that a carbon project is a forecast so essentially saying, you know, in the absence of this intervention, this is what I think would happen. So in avoided deforestation, the the debate there is you set what's called a baseline and you say, OK, well, I think this trend of deforestation was going to take place in this area. Now, clearly, if you think an aggressive trend of deforestation was going to take place and then over 10, 15, 20 years, you see a far less aggressive trend of deforestation, the spread between the two is overcrediting. Because you you know mm-hmm. you're essentially you know you're being overly inversed for something that hasn't been happening, and the the quality way of readdressing that is you reset your baseline, so you reset it in line with the actual trend of the underlying environment. But because the monitoring periods are historically three to five years, also it's very slow. You know, organic sequestration is quite a slow process. You can get quite big disconnects, and that's kind of been the focus of the the, the, the press discussion this this year. Um, but also, the carbon stock can be quite hard to monitor. So you know, you've got your baseline, which is what happened in the absence of the intervention, and then you realised, you know, baseline in terms of the ongoing life of the project. But the carbon stock is then what's actually happening because of your intervention. And you know, let's just say you thought this area was going to go from hundred x, you know, hundred nominal uh, to. to uh, to, to zero over a 50 year period and you were going to save 100 every year. So you're going to do the maximum impact every, that you possibly could. But what happens if your carbon stock is only half that? What happens if your carbon stock is only, you know, and, and you've overly estimated what your impact would be? So that's the overcrediting scenario. And third one is permanence. Now permanence is, and there's the six risk factors, but the, the, the big three are those three. And permanence is interesting because you've got this big debate about permanent, per, permanent removal, which, and it's obviously a podcast, so I'm using quotation marks there, is is like people talk about 100 or 1,000 year, you know, basically um, you know, capturing stones and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Now, geological sequestration. Now, that's really interesting to me because we're not going to be here in 5,000 years, so we just don't know. <laughs> you know, so that's like the forecasting <laughs> era there is is pretty, pretty hardcore, right? It's pretty interesting. You mm-hmm. can show that, but... We'll never be able to validate that in in uh, in our lifetime. Another one is this debate is, is organic, you know, carbon cycles. So, you know, in a temp, in a mm-hmm. tropical forest, you have maybe a thirty year um, carbon cycle, thirty to fifty year carbon cycle, and maybe you know we, we would be able to be around for that. But if you then replenish that and you keep it going, isn't that also just permanent because you're just on a permanent loop? And so there's a big debate there about thirty year versus a hundred year or hundred year versus a thousand year, and and then it's obviously about, you know, your, your, you know, the confidence you can ascribe to that claim. You know, basically, mm-hmm. how confident can you be? So those are the three big debates about about quality. There's lots of other factors involved, of course. Um, and what typically people want to see is it's going to be there for forever, as far as anyone can tell. <laughs> you know, you you basically have kind of modelled your your 
uh, carbon stock and your baseline as accurately as can be reasonably predicted and you iterate it on an ongoing basis in line with real behavior and that in the absence of public or private funding this money is essential for this preservation and or restoration and that was what quality projects would look like um, and in terms of are there many there's many like partly quality projects as there's you know in terms of our higher rating it's probably only about 15% of projects fall into our kind of highest buckets of ratings but there's a lot of projects out there that exhibit high additionality but low but have high permanence risks or deal with over crediting really well but have additionality concerns and so actually the second layer down to quality would be well back to where I started it's in the eye of the beholder what do you really care about mm -hmm. you know do you really mm -hmm. care about over crediting or do you really care about permanence and that's actually a much more nuanced and sophisticated position for people to take because it's actually something more similar to the types of risks that you would be comfortable with from a portfolio exposure perspective in financial markets. Some people want mature companies with high dividend yields and dividend coverage. Some people want companies with high, uh, you know, with high P, you know, high P ratios because it implies future growth. That's just an expression of your interest, right? That's your risk appetite. And that's the level where we think the quality debate should be going, driven by fundamental evidence supporting you know different risk profiles so that quality can be basically you know both in the eye of the holder and accurately reflected in the price of these instruments so that both people can perceive you know can perceive it and there's a buyer and seller active in the market so that's mm -hmm. but when we were talking about different stakeholders and the way they perceive the the value and the quality of the carbon credits i can imagine this reputational aspect is very valid on voluntary market but what about the quality on non-voluntary markets? Like the, the motivation of players there is, uh, I can assume, a little bit different. So In regulated would markets. You say, yeah, exactly. Would you say there's uh, even a space for quality there or improving the quality assessment of, of carbon credits? So, so it, um, absolutely right. I think the number one, number one risk associated uh, with um, using carbon credits is, is this reputational damage. You know, I call it headline risk, or, or, or um, you know, something's going to go wrong in your in your heads on, next on the line. Um, unfortunately, what you have in the market is very shallow information depth. So the ability for people to have other perspectives, other views, take the other side of that argument is quite limited. Hence, kind of all you really need is an academic paper that makes one claim associated with a a bulge bracket or a flagship newspaper and you can basically dismantle an entire project or even a company that's kind of evidence of a very shallow market because there should be 50 papers 100 papers 100 debates going on and that stuff should be you know just day-to-day -day oscillations so so that's very interesting and the, the kind of classic thing is i want something that has no risk you know price is the distribution of risk so really you're asking the wrong question there when people are saying to you i, I want nothing no risk you should then pay infinity price I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know what to say to that. In terms of regulated space, so the voluntary card market is what, what I call like an asset-based solution. So you're actually creating these instruments and these instruments are, are trading like, like they're an asset, a ton of CO2. Um, the regulated space is like a liability construct. You effectively set a big budget for a defined universe of, of, of companies and that's the you know, emissions budget. And then effectively you reduce that budget artificially through policy and you create a demand pressure for that via a paper and allow them to trade a paper instrument. So there's no real quality associated with an EEA. It's it's literally a fungible instrument because it's just a paper contract. It's not a, it's not an asset. It's not like you're trying to make an equivalent to a cook stove or a mangrove. Like that just doesn't exist there. It's it's all company emissions. It's all the same thing. And as long as you've got an agreed 
accounting system for how you calculate the, the corporate footprint, then, then it's all completely transferable. Now, those worlds are very likely to collide, in our view, in the coming years, where what you might call eligible credits, whether it's through Article 6 and the, and the rise of sort of sovereign corresponding adjusted markets or um, the corporate the corporate kind of funds card market as it exists, start to become eligible in these sort of regulated markets. Um, and in that instance, then you will start to see that fungibility conversation get more um, more pronounced. And actually the really big bull case, um, positive case for, for the voluntary carbon market is that they would end up being um, eligible for compliance markets. Maybe just to, to summarize a bit what you, what you described about different aspects of a good carbon credit and um, um, variables that you take into account to assess them. From, from a standpoint of an end buyer and let's say someone who wants to preserve uh, their reputation, what really matters is that they have a very meticulous assessment of whatever they want to invest in um, and they can kind of adjust the price to the risk level that uh, that they're willing to take. So the more expensive the, the credit, the probably let's say the higher the chances of of this credit actually delivering the results that it claims. To. And uh, they can protect themselves by saying, "Listen, we spend reasonable amount of, of money on this project. Uh, this is the 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 data that we have that it's the, the permanence is going to be good. That there is no leakage, uh, and so on and so forth. And this is kind of we we defend our 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 position." Um, is that a yeah. good way of looking but at it? That's where you'd like to get to. I think the interesting thing um, is that right now, although uh, I'm going to caveat this, but right now the price of the instrument doesn't necessarily tell you what would what you've just described as in a sort of a somewhat efficient market doesn't necessarily show you what that might be. You might just there's lots of asymmetries in the market, so you know you're, you're, you believe it might be high quality, but you just don't really know. Um, but what we did find in 2021 was that there was basically zero correlation, effectively zero correlation between our ratings and and the, and the price of, of instruments. But in 2022, when the, the volume of transactions picked up, a correlation started to emerge. So what that tells you is when there's more money at stake, more people are doing more DD, more people are arguing about this and you get some element of efficiency. And that's super interesting because that's really like, you know, you're, you're architecting a, a new financial like financial industry. It's, it, that's really exciting. So what that kind of tells you as well is you probably need 5, 10, 20 times the volumes of transactions taking place in the carbon markets to create that efficiency. But then that's a bit of a chicken and egg because people want these instruments to be high quality, have integrity before they buy them. But you also need a flourishing market to then that makes sure stuff that irons itself out in the process. So there's a little bit of this kind of you know. So in, in essence, your solution also uh, helps uh, bring more money to, to this market because there's so. more confidence into whatever uh, different stakeholders would be buying. Yeah, I mean, we see ourselves as, as a sort of essential rails. You know, we're, we're the information rails of, of one of the information rails for people to help, you know, assess risk in their, in their various um, activities in the market. And the more comfortable you can get in just talking finance terms, you know, what you're trying to do is reduce the risk premium associated with the with the interactions, right? And the more you reduce the risk premium, the more comfortable basically people are and the more scalable that they can get into. And what that means in climate terms is more money for more, vital, for more environmental projects, better environmental projects, and a high likelihood that you would be able to 
um, actually satisfy the climate objectives at a company and all societal level. Sounds like a bright future. <laughs> Tommy, we are a bit over time, but I'm really curious. I need to ask this one question. Uh, oftentimes we speak with different uh, founders, different startups that actually um, issue uh, carbon credits based on different activities like regenerating farming or um, capturing and processing of meth methane. I wonder what in your opinion is still missing or not to to make it easier to deliver higher credits to the market, higher quality credits? Um, so what would the one thing that would really help is better disclosure requirements for um, in the issuance and monitoring your project lifecycle. So, you know, like an annual accounts, a 10K, all the sort of things that all the analyst communities use in public markets, you just need to have really decent standardized quality data that allows everyone to go and then assess these things. That's the one smoking gun like step, which we try to incentivize um, uniquely in, in, in our kind of cohort by only accepting public information. Because we're trying to say to people that it's not okay if you just to have that under some NDA, you need to basically put that in the market because then the market gets more efficient because then you're incentivizing good behavior by good disclosure and good disclosure gets better prices and therefore you're kind of creating a virtuous cycle. Um, so yeah, that, that, that can happen. That would be a, a really important step because basically, you know, how are you supposed to assess these things if the availability of information is limited? I mean, and and it, so it, it doesn't require some, you know, some divine intervention. It just requires pretty standard, pretty normal, <laughs> perfunctory transparency and disclosure requirements. And then actually there's a bunch of people who are pretty good at figuring out the information once they've got the data to work with. Got it, got it. Many thanks for sharing, sharing all, the, all the insights. Uh, we covered your, your personal story. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, the quality of carbon credits and what does it mean to different stakeholders. And at the very end, uh, also, we touched the topic of uh, what, what does it take to issue good, good credits. Thank you so much, Tommy, for the conversation. Uh, we learned a lot today during this call, and uh, I think it's a very viable um, um, knowledge also to, to our audience. Thank you so much for being with Pleasure. us. Pleasure. Thank, Thank you for you. having me. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. If you want to stay up to date with Impact Startup Scene and hear directly from startup founders and investors, sign up for Ragnarsson Invest newsletter at ragnarsson.com slash ri or click the link in the description.